the Wheelie Podcast. Let your iPod bloom. Hello, listener. Welcome to Podcast 95. Unfortunately, Heather's not with us today, so you've got my dulcet tones to introduce the show with. But it's going to be a slightly science-based show today, and I'm joined by Farmer Phil. Farmer Phil. And Phil, I've noticed in the, in the yard you've got an interesting uh, new device. Yeah, well, it was a bit of a tragedy that one of our young heifers, who were sort of quite exuberant, decided that my ageing cattle crush, which is the device that we restrain them to treat them or test them or tag them or whatever, she didn't hold a great deal of respect for it and amid a shower of rust and various other bits of pieces went straight through it. And so when the farm assured man inspected it, he said, this isn't good enough, you're going to have to do something about this. And I happily said, oh, well, we'll repair that. And a couple of days later, Rob, who works for us, looked at me and he said, I think it's probably time for a new one, isn't it? And I said, yes, I think it probably is. <laughs> it's very smart. Anyway, very smart. But the other thing I, I should say is that we're, we're delighted to be joined by our guest today from the Composting Association, a chap who some of you will be familiar with, and certainly the name of which you will be familiar with, a guy called Jim Fredrickson. And welcome, Jim. Thank you very much for joining us today. You're uh, a fellow of the Open University, aren't you? That's absolutely true. And can I just say I'm absolutely delighted to be asked to come along here today because the word on the street is that actually it's quite an honour to be invited here. So I'm is that, really pleased. <laughs> is that how I managed to persuade you to come in? <laughs> <laughs> well, there cer- certainly wasn't any financial inducement that could that way. No, Although no, I'm enjoying a very nice cup of coffee. You, you will never get any financial inducement <laughs> of any sort out of Ricardo. <laughs> <laughs> so there's yeah, no point. It's very true, but I, I'm, I'm chuffed a bit to meet you. You have been here before, haven't you? I mean, I was going to ask you how, how have things changed because you said you have been up to Wigley's. Unfortunately, I haven't got the pleasure of Heather's company today, but you met Heather 10 years ago? Yeah, about 10 years ago, I came specifically to visit and to say hello to Heather and see what everybody was up to down here because, you know, people were saying Wiggly Wigglers is the place to be, you know, this new developing worm world that's that's emerging is 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 the so it's the place to be so i came down to see what you were up to i came during an open day i was really impressed right the number of people you had the sort of products you had and how environmentally friendly the place was and of course now i've come back again after these 10 years and the place has doubled in size and that's looking better than ever so well done fantastic oh that's good news isn't it and um, you brought the sunshine. I brought the sunshine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's because, Phil, you're struggling, aren't you? You've got to rush off. As soon as we finish this, you've got to frape off and mow a meadow. Well, we, we're going to try and go combining, but we're about five weeks behind with silage, hay and everything else. It's just been ridiculous. But there are folk who are a lot worse positioned than we are. Right. But it'll want to pick up soon, otherwise we're going to start losing crops, right. either through chitting in the... Head or growing through, or so you said. I mean, you said that barley. When I think about all the rain we've had, you know, I'd think about really heavy, big, fat heads of seed on on wheat and barley. But you said the barley looks like a really poor crop mm. this year. It's been a very, very strange year. I mean, it's, it's hard to remember now, but in sort of March, April, we had that lengthy bone-dry spell, and it was hot. Yeah, and we basically suffered from drought particularly the barley crops, which are that little bit earlier, and their defence against drought is to drop the tillers off. 
So in, in your barley plant, you might have as many as 10 or 15 ears, perhaps, and if it's stressed, it starts to lose those. Right. And in some fields, we're down to one ear per plant. Blimey. Which you can imagine. Yeah. I mean, it will compensate a bit, but I'm not expecting any barn-busting yields this year in that department. As far as the listener's concerned, as a farmer, do you imagine that this is going to affect the cost of food? It, it should do. In some ways, it has already. But, of course, these things are never quite as simple as they seem. The price of wheat or barley goes up um, a bit yeah. And the millers will suddenly say, right, the price of a loaf of bread has got to go up quite a lot. Yeah. And, you know, as a farmer, I can see that the ratios don't exactly match. Yeah, it's just sure. a question of a bit of... As a consumer, though, Phil, I'm always puzzled, as I, as I imagine many people will be, that why the cost of food doesn't go down, why the cost of certain products don't go down when they're really good years, when productivity is high. It, it's quite a complex thing, and, of course, its subsidy has a lot to do with it. Right. It inures the consumer from the producer. It protects them and it means that they're not connected to them. I believe there are a lot of food products that we buy and eat that aren't price sensitive at all. We just regard them as staples so that your milk, your butter, your bread, you might sort of look at the fancy breads but basically you just buy them because you think you have to have them. The price is irrelevant. When it comes to luxury things like your Sunday joint or whatever then price starts to come into play. Food is too cheap but the difficulty is persuading a government that if you get rid of the subsidy to farmers and look to a real price of food then the corresponding tax burden should be reduced and it's at that point that the government coughs because they never like doing that interesting stuff well jim back to you <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, one of the reasons and um, possibly that the the main reason that, uh, that i invited you along today and i'm chuffed a bit that you've been able to come is that recently there have been a couple of articles written i've got a couple in front of me now one from materials recycling weekly that we mentioned in a previous podcast and one that was in the, the sunday telegraph all about worms emitting nitrous oxide and this is off a back off the back of a study that's been undertaken in germany what has happened is there's this hiatus now amongst worm lovers and vermicomposters and whatnot that think that some of the remarks that you've made and actually interpret some of the, the writing here as being your own, as if you wrote the article. It clearly states that you haven't written those articles, but people are up in arms. So you know, <laughs> I wanted to bring you here to be able to explain yourself. <laughs> <laughs> now, there is a challenge. Uh, well... Let me say, first of all, I think the title in the Material Recycling Week mm, article... Yeah, Materials Recycling Week. Yeah, yeah it's Stimulating the, read, I think you'll find. Stimulating read, indeed. <laughs> it, it, the title for that was something like Worms Are Destroying the Planet, and then I think it said that I had said this. Well, I think anybody who knows me uh, would realise that I would never say such a thing. And I have to say, I've had a very interesting and worthwhile career <laughs> <laughs> so far over the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah. Uh, studying That's funny how things com- could change. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> studying composting and worm composting and the, and the use of worms in soil restoration and so on. Yeah. And, and so uh, I think the last thing I really want to do is to cut <laughs> got this <laughs> blooming uh, career yeah. off of the knees. Right? Yeah, yeah, so, sure. uh, yeah. I think, first of all, I didn't say that. I wouldn't say that. And it's actually not true. Right. Uh, what is absolutely true is that worms, either soil dwelling worms or worm composting worms, can emit nitrous oxide under certain circumstances. Now, right. that's very, very well researched. Uh, there's lots of articles in the scientific literature about this. It's perfectly normal. 
And what I have done is studied the emissions of nitrous oxide, which is a very potent greenhouse gas, from worm composting. But actually what we've studied is the very large-scale applications of worm composting. These are worm composting beds that perhaps might stretch for up to a hectare or two hectares. Uh, These are very large-scale systems. And it's true that in the summer, for instance, these beds can give off a lot of nitrous oxide because there's an awful lot of nitrogen going into the beds in the form of these very putrescible waste, this Mm. highly smelly waste that people put on these beds to feed worms. And what happens in those beds is that the waste gets broken down as normal, the the nitrogen gets converted to nitrate, which we'll all be familiar with, and very, Phil, you're very familiar Mm. with nitrate and very valuable compound. But what worms do is, in interacting with the the nitrate, the worms convert that nitrate into nitrous oxide. Now, normally nitrous oxide in those conditions can be converted further to very harmless nitrogen gas, which we all live with. I mean, Mm. the air is mainly nitrogen gas, and it's very neutral and doesn't cause any problems. But this interaction of worms with high levels of nitrate can give very high levels of nitrous oxide. And this happens to a large extent, in these very intensive worm breeding and worm composting operations. Mm. So we found that, and we have reported that in the scientific literature. In fact, we have produced a number of scientific papers on, on this over the years. And the scientific community, you know enjoys this new information and and congratulates us on on producing this and tells us how well the science is and all that sort of stuff. But as soon as this information then gets reported into the the everyday world of the layperson or the, Mm. the, the, the worm composter, then I can understand that people get very upset and annoyed because they hadn't appreciated that this could happen. But actually it can happen, certainly on a large scale, Perhaps what isn't so clear-cut is what happens in the small scale, like the domestic wormeries that we get. It's not clear, because it's not clear what the level of nitrates might be, for instance, in these systems. Uh, And therefore, you can't tell what the level of nitrous oxide might be. Isn't it interesting, though, with nitrogen? I I thought worms are, they have bacteria in their gut, don't they, to fix nitrogen in their casts. Worm cast contains something like 70% of the nitrogen contained in the, in the original material that they ate. So it's very, very important, isn't it, for stimulating plant growth, that, that nitrogen, and, and the fact that it's been able to be contained in the soil through the actions of earthworms. Soil worms are incredibly beneficial. There's absolutely no doubt about that. I mean, it was been recognised from the days of Charles Darwin that, that worms are the prime creators of topsoil, and the topsoil has a very high level of nitrogen in there that the worms are partly responsible for. Right. But I I have to say that in the process of digesting their food, which would contain nitrogen, the earthworms break down the carbon as well. So the carbon is released as carbon dioxide, but the nitrogen is conserved very much. And that's why you get a higher proportion of nitrogen in the cast because carbon has been lost. So it looks as though you're getting extra nitrogen, but you're not really. It's just that it isn't being lost. Now, that's really important, for instance, in composting systems. As you say, I'm a a director of the 
Composting Association in the UK, and some people wonder what the Composting Association is, but we've got something like five or 600 corporate, mainly corporate members. So all the big waste companies are members of the Composting Association, all the consultants, a lot of academics as well. And, and we, to a large extent, represent the composting industry. Right. We lobby government on behalf of composting, and composting has developed over the last 10 years from nothing into a, a, a very, very large industry now, and, and it's partly responsible or mainly responsible for taking a lot of organic material out of landfill and turning it into composted products which we all benefit from. So composting and the composting association is something I'm I'm very keen to promote and to support and Worm composting is, is obviously part of that whole worm, that whole composting way of operating. There are different types of composting operations, of course. But worm composting is really important. And the business about worms keeping the proportion of nitrogen high is absolutely true because in a worm composting system, you'll find that very little nitrogen is lost because of that transformation process of turning waste into compost. Worms are very good at retaining nitrogen. Whereas if you have a a, a big open tile system, big thermophilic hot composting system, and some of these can be composting up to 50,000 tonnes a year. Yeah, sure. So these are big, big (coughs) industrial-scale operations. What very often happens is a lot of the nitrogen is lost through losses of ammonia gas in the early stages, first week or two weeks of composting. Uh, And you can lose up to 50% of the nitrogen simply being lost as we would call a volatilisation of ammonia. So worms are particularly good at retaining that that ammonia. It's retained within the compost, whereas large-scale composting systems, very often that's lost to the atmosphere and actually can cause environmental problems as well. It's not just worms that can cause you know, emissions of, of nitrogen to the atmosphere. Yeah. Large-scale composting systems emit ammonia very often, and we're talking here about tonnes of ammonia right. that can be lost as gas, and that can be deposited in the neighbourhood as well. Yeah. So Overall, composting is fantastic. You can't get anything more environmentally friendly, but with all waste treatment processes, you have to do a risk analysis and you have to work out what the risks are with each process and you then try to minimise the risks and the hazards and you have to operate these different composting systems effectively and to minimise the environmental impact. But no waste treatment process is without some environmental impact and that's something we all have to live with i'd like to ask you jim about i mean what, what you've just been saying reminds me of my chemistry lessons and biology lessons yeah. many years ago <laughs> yeah but uh, no, you, think I, uh, you can't remember that <coughs> remember did they have chemistry in those days <laughs> well it's just about you know it was, a, it was a bit um you know hit and miss but anyway we I, really what you're talking about are the, the carbon cycle and the nitrogen cycle and how things we do releases carbon dioxide into the air and then other things we do such as growing plants can trap it and bring it round and so that worm composting has or any other sort of composting for that matter has an effect on how that works from the plant to co2 going back out into the air and by the sound of it we've got a similar situation with nitrogen so that various bacteria and plants will fix nitrogen out of the air or sometimes it'll arrive as sort of acid rain and things like that, which also fixes nitrogen out of the air. And then things like worm composting, the release of ammonia can put it back into the air. So that 
what we're looking at are natural processes on which things that we do might or might not have an effect. I suppose really what I'm saying is, assuming you agree with that rather crude analysis of it, that global warming or or so-called global warming has a multitude of influences, some of which are entirely natural and some of which are accelerated or even created from point naught by humans. And that the way that some of these articles have been written are sort of suggesting that you said that the worm kits around the country have just blown the Antarctic ozone layer to pieces, which is, you know, we all you know, don't believe, and I'm, I'm you know, pleased to hear that you don't either. But this is a natural process which we may or may not be speeding up, and that things like composting, we can save huge quantities of fuel and other things that cause problems... It's very complex, and I wonder what your thoughts were on that, You're trying to bring in the whole picture rather than just aiming at narrow pieces of it. Well, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, the one thing that I would say about, for instance, nitrous oxide releases is that al- although it's a very, very potent greenhouse gas, I mean, it is something like 296 times more potent than carbon dioxide, but the release of nitrous oxide happens quite normally in lots of soils, for instance, and it's exactly the same kind of process that, that happens with, with worms. Uh, for instance, in a lot of soils, whenever you get high applications of nitrates, and you probably have a lot of experience of, of this, whenever they get waterlogged or highly anaerobic for whatever reason, nitrous oxide can come from, from those soils. Mm. And this is a perfectly normal process. And it's the same with the, the worm research that, that I built on that was originally done in Germany. The team over there found that worms are responsible for about a third of the nitrous oxide releases in the atmosphere coming from forest soils. Mm. So, so worms in the natural so environment. In the natural yeah. environment. So, but that means the two-thirds of the nitrous oxide coming from forest soils come from per- perfectly normal chemical processes and biological processes, and the other third just comes from the action of worms. But presumably on the other side of the balance, the action of the decomposition in those forest floors and composting systems that has indirectly locked up that nitrogen on the other side of the cycle. This is true, but the, the, the fixing of the nitrogen comes from the molecular nitrogen, if you like. And mm. the, the, the problem with nitrous oxide and why this is, is an issue, why we're here today talking about such issues, is that it, nitrous oxide can linger in the atmosphere for, I think, at least 100 years, whereas methane, for example, tends to dissipate and disappear and be transformed after about... 10 or 12 years. So, it's, so that means that if you reduce the amount of methane in the atmosphere through improved landfilling or reduced landfilling, then you actually improve the greenhouse gas potential quite a bit because the methane only lasts for 12 years, therefore you can make a big impact. Nitrous oxide lingers for quite a way. I think in the articles that were written about the work that we did, what they failed to mention consistently was that all we were saying was Nitrous oxide associated with worm composting is an issue, but we just need to understand those issues in more detail. We need to try and find ways of reducing the amount of nitrous oxide from these sorts of systems or even preventing it. And there are uh, experiences in other waste treatment industries, for instance, 
You can get an awful lot of nitrous oxide from the aerobic treatment of pig slurry, for example, mm. and they've managed to minimise those emissions by running their plants in a particular way. So what we're suggesting is that we just do more research into the whole issue on the, on the one hand and that we, we seek ways of minimising these emissions because this is the way that the waste... I mean, I, I come from the waste treatment industry. That's where, that's where my heart is and where my home is, if you like. And this is what I'm concerned about, taking university research, <clears throat> applying it to the, the waste treatment industries and cleaning up the environment. So that's, that's pretty much where we're coming from in this. Do you, do you think that... I'm just sort of thinking about the practicalities of worms in the, in the environment and worms in a bespoke kit or worms in a large bed, but... If you take a small household kit where it is actually totally enclosed so that any liquid is caught as well, now we know that the liquid is rich in nitrates because nitrates are highly soluble in water so that any liquid collected out of a worm kit is is high in nitrates. By taking the nitrates away from the system, that presumably would reduce the amount of nitrous oxide because the worm's have the, the nitrates taken away from them. Would that be a fair comment? That's one of the mitigation measures that we have in, investigated. Mm. If you reduce the amount of nitrate in the system, we think that should reduce the amount of nitrous oxide. And uh, clearly we do our research on large-scale systems mm. where the amount of nitrate available to these worms is, is actually enormous. Yeah. We have found some of these... On a large scale, these worm bed systems can be there for up to maybe a year, two years. Uh, they're very highly aerobic environments. I'm sure your listeners know all about worm systems on a large scale where you have these bed systems, established bed systems made out of compost or cocoa fibre. And the, the worms tend to live in those beds for a long time. And then you feed regularly with very, very rich, nitrogen-rich uh, feed. And what happens is the, the nitrogen in the feed breaks down and gets converted to nitrate. So the, the bedding material that the worms live in, we have found, can be up to 2% nitrate. Now, that's an enormous amount mm. of nitrate. Mm-hmm. And what happens, of course, is once the worms ingest or even have nitrates on their, the surface of their skins that nitrate gets immediately converted to a flush of nitrous oxide under certain conditions. And I stress it's certain conditions, and we have to understand what those conditions are. But certainly we have found very, very high, what we would call fluxes of nitrous oxide coming from these bed systems. Sometimes as much as 400 times the fluxes that you would get from, for instance, fields of rape growing quite normally. So... The amount of nitrous oxide can be high, but it also can be reduced by doing exactly those sorts of things, Phil, as you say, by flushing out some of the nitrate. And there, there would be other ways of doing it as well, and we need to investigate these. Mm. But certainly, I should stress again that mainly I think the, the, the problems would stem from these very, very large-scale systems rather than the domestic scale. But to be frank, we don't really know. And, and one of the things that we would hope to be looking at and I say hope because clearly a lot of it's depending on government funding and so on for this type of research. 
is that is there much know, government funding for this type of research? I mean, it's kind of it's very important research, isn't it? By virtue of the fact that it's conjured up lots of hostile responses to these articles, these recent articles in the, in the paper, and you've even had some hate mail, haven't you? Well, I normally get hate really, mail so. from all sorts of people, so it that's is. perfectly normal. Yeah. <laughs> but isn't it a parallel story to farming and all sorts of other things that the general public are not necessarily exposed to the whole story? Yeah, that's, that's and that, right. You know, that was, having that had hard. ten minutes talking to Jim. He's not this horrendous enemy that the no, press no, might have no, had no, us believe. No, right. And that he's got a lot of great information that's of cr- critical importance to all of us. Yeah, yeah. But when you take the whole thing into consideration sure. and the fact that our very existence is a compromise on our planet's environment, it's a question of minimising the impact. We're never going to get rid of it. No. It's just a question of minimising it and sorting out the best way forward. I think that's right. And, and to do that, we have to do a, a risk analysis of all of these different treatment plants that we have because we just need the information to inform our decision-making. I mean, if, if we are going to go down more domestic-scale worm composting, then we've got to know the consequences, mm. we've got to know what the alternatives are, we've got to know ways of mitigating any environmental impact from those sorts of systems. But as I say, every waste treatment process that I know has got some environmental impact. It, mm. it clearly is what, what we have to live with and we have to accept that. And I mean, deep down inside, I'm, I'm basically a worm man. Mm. I think worms are great. We've We've had worms on Tomorrow's World at one stage That's because we, we look at breeding selected species of earthworms for land restoration purposes for, mm. for very hostile areas where you don't get any natural invasion of earthworms. And we've done all sorts of research over 20, 30 years to support the worm composting industry to help it grow. But the one thing I've noticed with, with worms over the years is worms are held up as this great icon, as mm. if they can do no wrong. Now, I've always thought that was a bit iffy, to be honest. Mm. You know, the, in the environmental world, there aren't any such things as free lunches. You know, there, there aren't any processes or organisms that are just solely for good. There's a balance in life, balance in the environment. Mm. And all we have to do is appreciate the fact that, that worms have basically very, very, very good applications and very good functions. But they're like everything else. They, they can have their downside as well. And we just need to be aware of that and to minimise some of the impacts that they may have on the environment. Amazing. I mean, that's absolutely fantastic. And I appreciate your, uh, your shedding some light on the whole thing for us. Because <laughs> I've, it's, I've been hugely beneficial for us. And uh, I hope the listeners have been able to appreciate. And hopefully some of this information will uh, now disseminate and, and smooth the waters a bit. But it does go to show, especially if you're passionate about a certain subject, how you kind of react to information. You know, as a sensible person, you read something in a tabloid and think, oh, it's rubbish. But if you read something that you're passionate about, then there's this inclination to think, that's rubbish but you know i need i need a response you know i need to satisfy my thirst for the truth it's been a pleasure having you here so it's thanks jim thank you very much for coming on behalf of the listener i'm sure people got something out of that so thank you very much for coming on today and here's monty's pig cast monty's pig cast a weekly fact on pigs sows can be mothers when they're less than one year old thank you for that mom And we'll catch up with everybody next week. Bye from me. Bye from me. Bye.